remain standing in honor of the reading and hearing of God's Word again. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, I'd invite you to turn to the book of 1 John. 1 John, and we commenced a couple Lord's Days ago uh, this new series uh, through the book of 1 John. We'll eventually go back to Genesis, but we're, we wanted to get in the New Testament and uh, to look at this epistle, this first epistle of John. And this morning, our text is going to be from 1 John chapter 2. And it's going to, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Originally, I thought verse 5, but I included verse 6 as well. So from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. I invite you to follow along as I read God's word aloud. The apostle writes, My little children... These things write I unto you, that ye sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for yours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith, he abideth in him, ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. May God bless today the reading and the hearing of his word and let us join again in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give thee thanks for the apostle and for this inspired communication that has been sent to us today. And we ask, O oh God, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of the truth. Let the Holy Spirit uh, bring light where there's darkness and cl- clarity where there's misunderstanding. And help us to know better, not only the scriptures, but also the Christ to whom they point. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, friends, we're continuing again this exposition of the book of 1 John. And we're we're now in the second chapter. And if we look back at the first chapter, um, there were some various key themes that were struck. And this often happens in, in books of the Bible, especially in the letters of the Bible, Paul's letters and other letters and shorter letters like this one, where a lot of times in the beginning, there are themes that are introduced, ideas that are introduced. And then the, 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 the penman, under the guidance of the Spirit, returns to those things to expand upon them, to reinforce them, and, and so every teacher knows the value of repetition. Um, there's an old Latin saying that repetition is the mother of learning. And so John knew that. And so he repeats a lot of things. And I just want to ask you just to reflect about 1 John chapter 1. And I want to point to at least three things that were themes that we heard in the very first chapter. One thing that we heard in the first chapter was the declaration that Christians 
although they are redeemed by Christ, by the shed blood of Christ, they have remaining corruptions within them and they will sadly continue to sin and therefore they will need to confess that sin and to receive forgiveness for it. In other words, John is not, was not teaching perfectionism. The idea that because you're a Christian, you're going to no more have any troubles, no more have any sin. In fact, he's pretty emphatic about it. Remember, uh, he said in verse 8 of chapter 1, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's one of the themes. As believers, sadly, we have remaining corruptions. We will continue to sin, but we must confess those sins and we have forgiveness for those sins. Second theme, if I could call attention to it, is the teaching that we find in the first chapter that the forgiveness of our sins and the cleansing of, our, of all our sin and all unrighteousness comes through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If you look at verse 7, it says at the very end of that verse, And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. So the first theme, we're, we're going to have remaining corruptions. We will continue to sin, but we should confess that sin secret. Second theme, we have ultimate forgiveness through the shed blood of Christ. Third theme that we heard in the first chapter, believers show that they're in Christ by following after Christ in their day-to-day living. And John uses a particular metaphor. It's one of his favorites. He'll, he'll come back to it over and over again, guided by the Spirit. It's the metaphor of walking. Walking. And we, we picked that up in our evangelical jargon. How's your walk? How's your walk with Christ? Well, that has a biblical root because if you look at, say, verse 7 of, of 1 John 1, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, We have fellowship one with another. So your walk is your Christian life, your Christian conduct. And so that's a third theme. Again, they're going to remain in corruptions. You're going to sin, but you should seek forgiveness. Confess those sins, seek forgiveness. Second theme, we have ultimate forgiveness through the shed blood of Christ. Third, we are to try to walk in obedience. It's, it's not our obedience, though, it's going to create our salvation, right? Our salvation is rooted in the shed blood of Christ, a work that's done for us, an alien righteousness that's been given to us. But as an act of gratitude and as, a, as an evidence that our lives have been changed, we will walk in the light as he is in the light. So those are three things. And guess what? When we come to 2 John, verses 1 through 6, I want to suggest those three themes show up point after point right here. Those three ideas are going to come right back. And I'll, I'll point that out hopefully in just a moment. The, the theme that's going to be at the center, the second one I talked about, our forgiveness comes through the shed blood of Christ. I think 
is right there in in 2 John 2.2. And it's there in the declaration. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And so we're going to give quite a bit of our time talking about that. What, is, what, did, what did he mean when he talked about Christ being the propitiation for our sins? And, you know, that's kind of a, that's a, that's kind of a Christian jargon, uh, propitiation. That's not something you go around saying every day, right? Hey, how's, you know, what happened with the propitiation? You know, what does that word even mean? And you know, most of us know that, that, that when you become a Christian, um, you begin to build your vocabulary. You begin to, your vocabulary gets expanded. You learn ways Christians talk and things they talk about. And so often, a lot of our language is, is flavored with biblical terms and ideas. And, and so, again, when someone's a new believer, maybe they weren't raised in the faith, they weren't raised in a believing home, and they come into the church, they'll hear people talking about, you know, I'm just fulfilled with agape love today. What? What's agape love? Agape, that's the Greek word for love, and it means the special concern that Christians have for one another. Or someone might say, well, we had some good koinonia today at church. Some really good koinonia. What's that? Is that, was that? is that like a dessert? What's koinonia? It's the Greek word for fellowship. Even the word fellowship. I mean, about how many things, I mean, if you go to a, a PTA meeting or you go to a, even a family reunion or something else, do you really go out and say, man, that's a good fellowship today. You know, we had a really good meeting at work today, some really good fellowship. No, but it, it's a word we use that talks about the special connection we have with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a special term. And some people refer to this as the language of Canaan. There were all these debates back when church growth, I guess it's still probably talked about in some circles. We don't hear too much about this in the back eddies of where we are, but people say, well, we've got to change the language. We've got to make it, we've got to, you've got to change things so that outsiders can understand what we're talking about. And um, yeah, well, we'd rather say, we, we need to teach these people our language when they come in. We call, sometimes call it the language of Canaan. That you learn what Christians talk about, what we think is, is important. And what, what terms savor our language that are drawn from biblical concepts and ideas. And today we encounter one of those types of terms, propitiation. Even people who have been longtime Christians might be a little unsteady on this one because it's a word that appears only three times in the classic English translation of the Bible that comes through the Tyndale King James Version tradition. Propitiation. What did John mean when he said, and he is the propitiation for our sins? And if you haven't already, log this in your Christian vocab. Today is going to be a good day. Uh, to add this uh, to the list of things that you're learning about as you follow Christ. Well, let's turn now. Let's look at our passage. And again, 
I want to suggest that as we look at this passage, that we can divide it into three parts, and each part addresses, reinforces, and expands something that we learned about in the first chapter. The three parts also, I think, describe Christ directly or indirectly in three ways. So the first thing we want to look at is in uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Christ is described as our advocate. Christ is our advocate. And this lines up with the idea that we continue because of remaining corruptions to sin and need forgiveness. Christ is our advocate. Secondly, in verse 2, the theme is Christ is the propitiation for our sins. And this relates to the theme that we have forgiveness through the shed blood of Christ. And then thirdly, in verses 3 through 6, I want to suggest that the main theme is Christ is our commander. We could also say he's also our example. He's our commander and our example. And this is going to relate to the idea that we should walk in the light as he is in the light. That our conduct matters in the, as a means for us to honor Christ. So let's, let's look at these three parts. Christ is our advocate, verse 1. Christ is the propitiation for our sins, verse 2. Christ is our commander and example, verses 3 through 6. Let's begin with the very first one. Christ is our advocate. John the Apostle begins, First uh, John 2, with these words. My little children, these things write I unto you. Let's pause here. What does he call the people who are receiving this letter? He calls them my little children. In, in Greek, the word for a child is, is technon. And that's a word we're going to see that, that shows up quite a bit because Christians are called the children of God. The plural of it is techna. Child is technon. Techna is, is the word children. But that's not the word that John uses here. He doesn't use the word child. He doesn't say my, simply my children. But he adds one letter in Greek. It's an iota, or the letter I. Instead of calling them techna, he calls them technia. And that means my little children. My little children. Maybe, maybe those of you who have been parents and you have multiple children, you know, you start to rely on the older ones to take care of the younger ones. And you go to the grocery store and you say, okay, you kids, take care of the little one. Take care of the little one. One time I did, a, I did a horrible prank on my children, which I will never do again, when Isaiah was, was the youngest at that time in our family. And we were out sh- Christmas shopping, and I told them, the older ones, keep, now keep an eye on Isaiah. Don't let anything happen to Isaiah. And then I snuck around and snatched it and scared them to death. I'll never do it again. It's, kind of, it's, it's like the other the snipe hunt thing, Sophie. I'll never do it again. But anyways... Uh, so watch out for the little children. But this is the word that John uses. And 
It's one of John's favorite ways of of referring to the Christians to whom this letter is addressed. Look at uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. I write unto you little children. Technia, the same term that's used again. Look in 1 John 2 and look at verse 28. And now little children abide in him. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. Little children, let no man deceive you. Look at chapter 3 and verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. Year of God, little children, and have overcome them. And look at chapter 5 and verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So it's one of John's favorite terms for referring to the believers to whom he's writing. Why does, he, why does he use this term for them? Probably two reasons. First, he likely had been their so-called spiritual father. He had been the one who had showed them Christ, had preached Christ to them. They had come to the faith under his ministry. He had discipled them, and he had love for them like a parent has for the youngest child or the smallest child, the least child. We think about the Apostle Paul. He had a similar type of experience with Men like Timothy and Titus, when he wrote to them, he would call them my dear sons, my dear sons. And so John's term is little, little children, my little children. Secondly, though, I think it relates to the fact of who they are in Christ. And it's a term that's related to the term children of God because of my little children. It's also referring to the fact that they have a new status. In Christ. And, and we can look, for example, at John chapter 1, the Gospel of John, verses 12 and 13. It says, But as many as received him, meaning Christ, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Against techna and not technia, but the two terms are related. Even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And this term, children of God, is also a term that John uses repeatedly throughout this first epistle. Look, for example, at 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons or the children of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the children of God or the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be. And the same term also appears in 1 John 3.10 and in 1 John 5.2. So he's writing to my little children. Ones he probably introduced to the faith. But also ones who have become by God's grace and by God's power. Those who were not a people. Those who were nobodies. Who have been made the children and the heirs of God through Christ. Do you see, by the way, how John's term, the children of God, is not the same as what we might call Oprah Winfrey theology. She says and believes that everyone is a child of God by virtue of birth, by virtue of humanity. 
But Christ says you are only a child of God by virtue of the new birth, by virtue of the new humanity. In fact, Christ said in John 8, 44 to his opponents, you are a child of your father who is the devil. You only become a child of God when you're converted. It's a supernatural status. Going back to our passage now, verse 1. My little children, these things write I unto you. I think that, that phrase is an argument for this being a letter. I suggested maybe it's more like a treatise or a sermon. But he's, he's self-consciously saying, I'm writing something to you. And he's referring to them by this, this special name, this, this, uh, this title of tenderness that he, that he has for them. And to what end does he write this? Look at verse 1. That ye sin not. My little children, these things write unto you, that ye sin not. And again, we have to read this in the context of everything else. Is John saying that he has an expectation that these people will never sin? No. See 1 John 1 verse 8. See 1 John 1 verse 10. John is not teaching perfectionism in this life. This side of the kingdom, we will not be fully sanctified. We must wait till the time of our deaths and the time of the coming of Christ ultimately in glory and the final resurrection till we entered into the glorified state. But John's desire is that these little children of his would nonetheless live victorious Christian lives in which they would no longer be bound by the old ways of sin. And so his desire for them is that they would have full, vibrant, obedient Christian lives. And they would enjoy all the fruit, all the advantages and the benefits of that. He says, that's why I'm writing this. He also knows, however, as we've already pointed out, that in this life they will sin. They will fall. They will suffer the the damages of remaining corruptions within them. And he wants them to know that when that happens, he doesn't want them to be crushed by it. And he wants them to realize that even in those circumstances, a gracious provision has been made for them. And so he continues in verse 1. And if any man sin... It could have been, and when any man, and here man is not all human beings, but any Christian man or any Christian woman. And if any Christian person sin, what's the provision he says has been made for us? We have an advocate with the Father. We have an advocate with the Father. The term that is rendered here in this English translation as advocate is the Greek word parakletos. You've probably heard this term before. It's another one of those Christian terms that gets bandied about. Um, and sometimes it's rendered as paraclete. Here it's, it's rendered as advocate. This term can mean a spokesman, an intercessor, a helper, a comforter. In fact, many of you are probably familiar with, if you've been around church, you've been reading your Bibles and your devotional life, you, you know that this term appears especially in the Gospel of John 
on the lips of Christ himself as he uses this term to refer to the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. There are four places in John's gospel where this term parakletos is used in reference by Christ to the Holy Spirit. John 14, verse 16, Christ says, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, parakletos, that he may abide with you forever, verse 17, even the Spirit of truth. John 14, 26, But the comforter, the parakletos, or the advocate, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. John 15, verse 26. But when the comforter, parakletos, or advocate, is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. John 16, 7. Christ said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter, the parakletos, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. So John uses that term of an advocate. We look back in 1 John chapter 2, this passage. We look back to the gospel of John. Christ used this term and he, and he used it to refer specifically to the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit. Now, before we move on, let me just let me just make a side note here. Some of you know this is uh, maybe uh, too too remote an idea, but those passages I just read are also very important for the Christian doctrine of the Trinity and what we call the procession of the Holy Spirit. And this is a place where we would differ with people who are part of Eastern Orthodoxy because we believe that the Spirit proceeds or processes from the Father and the Son. And our Eastern Orthodox friends think the Spirit proceeds just from the Father. If you read the, the, the verses that I, that I quoted to you earlier, and you read John 14, verse 16, and it says, pray the Father and he will give you another comforter that seems to be sent by the Father. In John 14, 26, it says, the comfort, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. You think, well, wait a second. The Eastern Orthodox have a point here. It seems that the, that, that the Spirit is sent by the Father. But if you look at John 15, 26, it says of the Spirit, whom Christ says, whom I will send unto you from the Father. And in John 16, 7, it says, I will send him unto you. And so... The position it's taught in our confession, for example, is that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Well, that's not the focus, but just a side teaching. Let's get back to our main focus. Who is the advocate? Who is this parakletos? Christ spoke of an advocate that the Father and the Son will send, who is the Holy Spirit, who will comfort believers during this time we're living in when Christ isn't physically present with us. The Spirit will be here. But John, what does he say? If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. John says that, yes, we have 
the paraclete. We have the Holy Spirit as Christ taught. But John says, gives us new insight. He says, the Lord Jesus Christ is also our advocate. The Lord Jesus Christ is also the parakletos. He is the intercessor. He is the spokesman. And John calls attention to this, especially in respect to situations in which we sin, in which our remaining corruptions cause us to do things that are adverse to the will of God and the law of God. And again, what's he wanting to do? He's wanting to comfort and assure Christians who will be crushed by the fact that they have sinned. And he's telling them, remember, friends, we have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ. The Spirit helps us in our prayers. Paul taught that in Romans 8, 26. He said, likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. But John says, not only do we have the Holy Spirit, but we have the risen and exalted Christ also. He also is our advocate. Can you imagine a situation where Christ goes to the Father and serves as an advocate for us when we fail? Can you see Christ in heaven coming to the Father? And can you imagine his advocacy for us? Oh, Father. Oh, Father, remember, he's only dust. Remember, Father, she was only formed with dust. Father, remember, you saved this man and you promised to sanctify him and glorify him. Father, Father, have mercy on this man. You saved him and you will continue to save him. Oh, Father, Remember that my blood was shed to satisfy your wrath for the sin that he's just fallen into. My blood was shed for the forgiveness of this man's sin, this woman's sin. Can you imagine Christ advocating for you every time you stumble and fail and sin? The Apostle Paul wrote about this also in Hebrews 7.25 when he said, Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Christ is our advocate. Isn't that a wonderful consolation for the Christian life? It's not licensed for us to, to go on in persistent sin. But it's a wonderful, a wonderful consolation to those who struggle with sin and are crushed by it. Notice, by the way, at the very end of that, 
We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, and he throws on in opposition to it one more description of Christ, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that's meant to stand in contrast to the Christian who falls into sin. That man is unrighteous, but Christ is righteous, and his righteousness swallows up our unrighteousness if we are in him. Another famous passage in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul said, For God, the Father, he hath made him, meaning Christ, God the Son, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the righteous. Second of our three points, Christ is the propitiation for our sins in verse two. This verse begins with a declaration. And he, and the he here, the pronoun he, is referring back to Jesus Christ, right? And he is the propitiation for our sins. And here we have that special term. In Greek, the word is helasmos, helasmos. This word only occurs one other place in the New Testament, and that place is also in 1 John. Look over at 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the helasmos, the propitiation for our sins. And like I said, this is one of those terms that is less familiar because it appears less often within the scriptures. It's translated as propitiation just three times. And this particular word appears just two times in the entire New Testament. Helasmos. There is another word that's similar to it, helasterion, and it carries what we could call an ordinary meaning, and it mean, the ordinary meaning of it is the mercy seat. And it was the, the word that was used when they translated the Old Testament into Greek to translate the word for the covering that was put on the Ark of the Covenant. That was the mercy seat, or the helasterion. And it's similar to the word helasmos. And so there is a place in the New Testament where it's used in that ordinary sense. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, it's translated as mercy seat because it simply refers to the covering that was on the Ark of the Covenant. But among Christians, this term also came to have a specialized meaning to refer to the sacrifice that was given to take away sin to satisfy God's justice. And this was connected to the Old Testament sacrificial system and to the commands that were given by God through Moses that when the sacrifices were given, some of the blood was to be sprinkled upon the Ark of the Covenant. If you look at Leviticus chapter 16, verse 14, it says that the priest is to dip his finger in the blood of the sacrifice and he says, sprinkle it seven times. Seven, a fullness of times, a perfect number of times. And the blood was to be sprinkled upon the Ark of the Covenant, which was the place that God 
had his ruling and reigning unseen by men, but where he was seated on that mercy seat. And these terms were used to describe a special understanding of what has to take place for forgiveness of sinners and sins to be achieved. And that's why this term helasmos or helasterion was used to describe what had to take place. Not only was sin taken away, but the divine justice of God had to be satisfied through the shedding of blood. We talked about this with the Heidelberg Catechism last week. From the Christian view of the forgiveness of sin, it's not simply that the, that the slate is wiped clean, it's that someone has to pay a price. There has to be the satisfaction of God's justice. And this term was used, the blood had to be sprinkled on the mercy seat. There had to be the satisfaction of God's justice. And when the Bible translated into English, they came up with this word propitiation. It's the propitiation of God. It's propitiating God. And so in Romans 3.25, Paul said, speaking of Christ, he said, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. And so when John says, and he is the propitiation for our sins, he's saying the blood of Christ was like that blood that was put on the mercy seat. That was a shadow and a type. And now it's been perfectly fulfilled in Christ who satisfied God's divine justice to save men. A price has been paid. God's justice has been satisfied. He is the propitiation for our sins. Even that word, propitiation, the English word, intentionally has in it the prefix pro, which means to put something forward, to provide, to protect, to promote. It's the propitiation. It's the blood of Christ put forward for us to satisfy divine justice. There's also, by the way, I don't want to get too geeky over the language, but it is important. There's a verbal form of this. There's a verb, helaskomai, that comes from the same concept of the mercy seat and this propitiatory sacrifice. It's used in Luke 18, verse 13, when Christ tells the parable of the publican and the sinner. Remember? The, 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 or the, the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee, you know, stands in his own self-righteousness and prays, but the publican, the tax collector, stands afar off. And Christ says in Luke 18, 13, he would not so lift his, as much, much as lift his eyes to heaven, but he smote his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the way it's translated. But the verb there is that same verb for God put forward the propitiatory sacrifice for me. Sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat for me. Satisfy your divine justice, your rightful wrath for me. It's interesting that uh, with the advent in recent years of modern translations, 
as they've begun to replace in many circles the old authorized version translation, that many of the early modern translations changed the word propitiation. And uh, there was a, a generally a protest among traditional Christians related to this. The Revised Standard Version of 1952 used the term expiation. Expiation. And that means simply to take something away. It lacked the word pro, the idea that Christ's death is helasmos. It is the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat. The New International Version uh, uses the term sacrifice of atonement or atoning sacrifice in place of propitiation. But there was such an outcry that even today, many of the modern Bible translations have gone back to the old word propitiation. It's used in the ESV, the New American Standard Bible, because they recognized the linguistic and the theological importance of it. He is the propitiation for our sins. This verse sheds light not only on the nature of Christ's propitiatory sacrifice, hopefully we can add that word propitiation now to our Christian vocabulary, but if we keep reading in verse 2, John's teaching here also expands and addresses what we could call the extent of Christ's atoning work and who the objects of his death upon the cross, the saving objects of that death were. And so John continues, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, we should recall here with verse two, to whom is John speaking? My little children. He's speaking to Christians. And he's saying to his fellow believers, and he's using the, 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 the first person plural, and he, Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. Your sins, my little children, and mine as an apostle. He's the propitiation for our sins. Just as the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, when he rehearses the gospel, he says, the gospel I preach to you is that Christ died for our sins, dear believers, people at Corinth, and for the apostle Paul's sins. Here, John is doing something similar. He is the propitiation for our sins. Some, however, have been puzzled, can make you puzzled by the way the end of the verse plays out, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What did he mean by this? Well, let's look at it. In the authorized version, you'll notice that the, the words, the sins of, are in italic. And when the translators do that, they're telling you that they're, they're, they've added words that don't rely on an underlying Greek word. So if you, if you were to put it into just the basic Greek, it would be, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And understand the meaning the translator has, translators have added for the sins of the whole world. But what did John mean by that? Was John teaching here that Christ died for all men without exception? He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
Is John saying that when Christ died on the cross, that everyone was saved? That's a teaching that's called universalism. It's the idea that all men are saved whether they believe in Christ or not. You will hear Pope Francis spout this. You will hear this taught in the pulpits of mainline Protestant liberal churches. Christ's health and cross, all men are saved. The problem with that teaching, however, is that it does not fit with the rest of the Bible. Why? Because the Bible describes unbelievers who are not redeemed and who suffer judgment in hell. And the Bible teaches, as in John 3.36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Universalism doesn't fit with the teachings of the rest of Scripture. Others suggest that what John was saying here was that Christ died He was the propitiation for our sins and he created a sort of a a hypothetical or potential salvation that's out there perhaps that there's kind of like a spiritual bank and it's in there and whether it's released is conditioned upon the responses of men. But that doesn't match up with scripture either. Paul said in Romans 9 and verse 16 that salvation is not of man who willeth nor of man who runneth, but of God who showeth mercy. How then are we to understand what John is saying and make it make sense with the rest of Scripture? What John is marveling in here is the fact that he's writing to a group of Christians that probably included Jews and Gentiles, and he's saying, He, Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours only, but also for countless others, myriads of people from the whole world, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slave and free, who will come to have faith in him. He saved us and he will save men and women out of the whole world. There will be people from the whole world. There will be Persians who will come to know Christ. There will be Burmese who will come to know Christ. It will be Chinese who will come to know Christ. Barbarians, Scythians, slave and free. He is the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The third part of our passage. Christ is our advocate. Christ is the propitiation for our sins. Christ is our commander, we might say our example. Verse 3. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. I love, I love that repetition. We do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Christ, notice, is the one who gives commandments. Now in the Old Testament, who gives commandments? Go to Mount Sinai, Exodus 20. Who gave the commandments to Moses? God. But John says, Christ gives commandments. He's the commander. And so he's telling us that Christ and the Father are one in essence. 
And so, uh, anyway, verse 3, and hereby we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He continues in verse 4, he that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Let me double back on this for just a second. Notice there's a stress here on the necessity of obedience. And this ties in to the earlier teaching that we walk in the light as he is in the light. And the Christian, the one who is saved, will want to do what? He will want to obey the commands of Christ. One of the great benefits of this last part of the teaching here is related to what we call the doctrine of assurance. It's something that Christians often struggle with. Am I really a Christian? If I'm really a Christian, would I really have done that sin? If I'm really a Christian, would I really have those thoughts? Would I really have neglected the spiritual discipline so much and so forth? Am I really a Christian? This passage is so important for the doctrine of assurance. If you want to ask yourself, am I really a Christian? The Puritans would have said, go to the Bible and find some biblical tests. And one of the things they would say is read this. And are you someone who desires to keep the commandments of Christ? Apply this this test, verse 3, and hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And we know from the previous context we're not going to perfectly keep those commandments. Go see 1 John 1, 8, and 10. But the believer is one who wants to keep the commandments of Christ. What John writes here is perfectly consistent with what Christ said. John 14, 15, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 15, Christ said to his disciples, If ye love me, keep my commandments. I've said this before for memorization purposes. When you, if you can remember John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, just flip them around and look at John 15, 14 also, where Christ said, ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I command you. You see, generally speaking, those who are outside of Christ do not want to obey Christ. Shocking, I know. Generally speaking, non-Christians don't want to obey Christ. But who wants to obey Christ? Christians. People who are disciples. People who are followers of Christ. We do it imperfectly because we have remaining corruptions within us. And when we do not follow Christ, we break His commandments, we're grieved. We're heartbroken. Many times we're in despair because of this. We want to obey Christ. We know that we know him because we want to obey his commandments. What are his commandments? Well, it's everything he's taught us. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ and everything else he taught. Hereby, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Verse four, let's go to verse four. Verse four describes the false professor, the faker. 
He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. And then conversely, in verse 5, he describes again the genuine believer. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. It has to be perfected because right now we have remaining corruptions within us. But in this life, we're being slowly sanctified. The love of God is being perfected in us. It won't be complete in this life. But it will be in the age to come. At our deaths, our spirits will be with Christ. And when he returns in glory, we will be reunited to our resurrection bodies. And we will enter into uh, the blessed state. Again, what is being laid out for us is what we call assurance of salvation. Look at the end of verse 5. Hereby, obeying Christ and having the love of Christ perfected in us, hereby know we that we are in him. I don't know, sometimes Christians say, well, it's not enough. I read this, it's just not enough for me. Friends, think more about it. Think more about it. Hereby know we that we are in him. Do you want to obey the commandments of Christ? Are you grieved when you break his commandments? Friends, unbelievers don't think that way. If you have those inklings, thereby you know that you are in Christ. Go to the advocate. He stands by the Father. We have an advocate. He is, present tense, the propitiation for our sins. Hereby know we that we are in him. If you study Islam, we'll go look at Islam later on Wednesday night in the series. But it's a religion has absolutely no assurance. You live your life, and they believe that at the end you stand before Allah, and there are scales put out. And there are all the things you've done good, and there are all the things you've done bad. And you're hoping against hope that you've done more good things than bad things. And the scales will tip in your favor. But even then, because they say Allah is sovereign, he can change his mind at the last minute. That's not our faith. Our faith is, I have Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's weighed it down for me. He is my advocate. He is the propitiation for my son. You see. And out of a gratitude, I want to obey his commandments. Not because it will tilt the things in my favor. But because he's changed me. I'm his. And my citizenship has been transferred into his kingdom. I want to live for him who died for me. Well, verse 6, He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. It's tying us back into walk in the light as he is in the light. Well, friends, we've worked through the passage. Hopefully the Spirit's already made the applications. I don't have a lot of applications to make. Let me just hit three key points. Guess what they're going to be? Christ is our advocate. To the one who has fallen, even into grave sin, do not despair. 
we have one who advocates before the Father for us. Second, Christ is the propitiation for our sins. Christ has won our salvation. He did what we could not do for ourselves, nor what anyone else could have done for us. He is the propitiation for our sins. Thirdly, Christ is our commander. We can have assurance of salvation in Christ and rest upon him only, both to deliver and to preserve, in us, to preserve us, to perfect in us the love of God, to save us and keep us as we seek to obey his commands. Christ is our advocate. Christ is the propitiation for our sins. Christ is our commander. Amen? Amen. We invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we give thee thanks for thy word and for the Apostle John uh, who speaks to us. For we too are his little children. This Apostle has taken us under his wing and would have us not to be uh, crushed under the, under the weight of the knowledge of that we're not now what we one day will be. And we give thee thanks and praise today for uh, the great mercy that has been extended to us through Christ. And we ask that you would use thy word today to accomplish the purposes for which you've sent it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.